I heard good things about Anastasia, the guest preacher, last couple weeks uh, doing our series on the Psalms, and I'm glad to hear that. Uh, it's good. Uh, we had a good vacation. They always go faster than you think, but uh, here we are feeling refreshed, and so uh, we thank you for um, permitting us vacation time. Uh, we begin today with the first article in the Apostles' Creed, the first statement. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Well, you better. You're the pastor. <laughs> no, really. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Friends, the words of the Apostles' Creed are not just things we say because we think we're supposed to say them because we're in church. <laughs> We don't just rattle them off in a routine sort of way just because the words are on the screen. And I don't want my neighbor or worse, my mother to see that I'm not saying them. Have you ever been there? I was when I was a kid. (laughs) Rather, the words of the Apostles' Creed are intended to be a focal point, like a centerpiece candle. The Creed intends to focus our attention on what is most important in the Christian faith. It has the power to bring us together despite differences. It has the potential to serve as a calm and steady center for us. A center we keep coming back to in the midst of our own confusion, exhaustion, doubt, and division. So that's the beauty of the Apostles' Creed. But there also lies a real danger every time we declare together a statement of faith, especially one that we say repeatedly like the Apostles' Creed. The danger is that the words become dead. As soon as we say each word, just as quickly can the word fall flat on its face and do us no good at all. Therefore, each of us must put in some mental effort. We must put in some effort in order to keep our souls alive to the truth behind the words. What is the truth towards which the Apostles' Creed point? The truth is the reality of God, hidden in mystery, yet revealed in mercy. So when we say the Apostles' Creed together over the the coming weeks, all of us are called to get our minds in gear. Let us beware of the danger to just rattle it off in a routine sort of way, and let us instead try to think about what each word means in its fullness. So we're called to summon as much mental energy as we can, by the grace of God, to attend to the reality of God, described in this ancient short summary of faith. And by God's grace, we can actually do this. Repetition does not need to become rote. With God's help, we are able to say what we mean with increasing admiration and delight every time we say it. In order to help us mean what we say and to understand even more deeply what we say, we begin today a six-week series entitled, We Believe, Exploring the Apostles' Creed. So the first article, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Revelation 4 shines a bright light on this article of faith, and we'll get there in just a minute. But before we do, a brief history of the Apostles' Creed would be helpful, don't you think? If you don't think so, you've got about four minutes to snooze, so set your timers. But for you that are interested, here's the brief history. First, why is it called the Apostles' Creed? If you look in the sermon notes section of your bulletin under key definitions, you can pull this out. Under key definitions here, 
you'll see that the word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which simply means I believe. The Apostles' Creed begins with the words I believe, and so it's called a creed. In the church's history, the word creed has come to refer to a statement of faith that summarizes the main points of Christian belief, common to all Christians everywhere. So far, so good. That's the creed part. But why is it called the Apostles' Creed? As you may know, the name Apostle is given to the 12 disciples of Jesus. And there are 12 articles, 12 individual statements in the creed. And so a legend developed that one of the 12 apostles contributed one of each each statement, like this, this group project. Perhaps, but the historical evidence doesn't appear to back up the idea of a group project. What the evidence does affirm, though, is that the Apostles' Creed truly reflected the essential truths of the Christian faith as taught by the Twelve Apostles. And so we rightly call it the Apostles' Creed. Does that make sense? But why do we need a creed at all, you might ask? Why not just refer to the Bible? Well, imagine the time immediately after Jesus ascends into heaven. Can you put yourself there? 33 A.D. Put yourself among the disciples in that day and age. Jesus is no longer physically available to clarify his teachings. And different folks begin to say different things about who Jesus is and what he taught. How can you distinguish the real Jesus from the counterfeit? Furthermore, the New Testament writings will not be completed for another 80 years, and they won't be compiled and put all together for another 140 years. What's more, the New Testament won't be bound and shipped to your congregation until the invention of the printing press in the year 1440. So there you are in the first century, having heard competing accounts about who Jesus is and what he taught. And all you have to work with is the Old Testament and your memory from some of Paul's letters that circulated through your congregation. But you can't consult them because you've already passed them along to another church. This is the situation In this situation, let me ask, wouldn't it be wonderful if you had a distilled summary of the Christian faith as taught by the apostles, and therefore as taught by Jesus? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we possessed a summary of the faith so that we could not only fact-check teachings about Jesus, but also to use to instruct people interested in the faith, and also to, to, to teach people the basics of the faith as we prepare them for baptism? Wouldn't that be wonderful if that existed? Of course, that's exactly what developed into the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed has its roots in the ancient church of Rome in the late 100s. It has been used to instruct people in the basics of belief ever since. It has served as a reliable guide for interpreting scripture. And for at least 1,700 years, it has been the sole creed used at Christian baptism in the Western Church. And so today, we can still say that the Apostles' Creed remains the best condensed statement of Christian faith and the most reliable way to learn the heart of faith. So that's why we're doing a preaching series on the Apostles' Creed. Countless Christian communities from across the world, get that, spanning back to the late 100s, have used these very words, to learn the heart of the Christian faith. We join their company for the next six weeks, and my prayer is that the creed becomes a 
calm and steady center for us, like that centerpiece candle that steadies us, a focal point. We can keep coming back to it in the midst of our own confusion, despair, and doubt. I don't hear any timers going off, so I think you all are still with me. The first article of the Creed, as we've stated, is this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Revelation 4 will illuminate what this means for us today. But before we read, let us pray. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. You made your glory higher than heaven. When we look up at your skies, at what your fingers made, the moon and the stars, we ask ourselves, what are human beings that you are mindful of us? Why do you pay any attention to us at all? But you do. The majestic one, you have become a father to us. We are your sons and daughters by grace alone. So we ask you to speak to us now as a father speaks with his child. Tell us just what we need to know about you and what you think we can handle so that we can live all of our hours in light of your presence. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord revealed to a man named John. John was left all alone on an island called Patmos as punishment for telling the truth about Jesus. But in Christ, we are never alone. This is the vision John received from Jesus Christ. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up right here, and I will show you what must take place. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. They are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne... There was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. 
that's a hard act to follow, my friends. Certainly you don't have any questions about this scripture passage, do you? There's so much symbolism in this passage, and all sorts of analogies could be drawn from the various images. What does the rainbow mean? What about the crowns? If you read ancient commentators on this passage, you'll begin to see that different interpreters connect the dots in so many different ways. It's really fascinating. But one thing is agreed upon. One thing is for sure, and that's what I want to focus on this morning. That one thing is this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. So what does it mean that God is almighty, as we profess in the first article of the creed? The Greek word translated almighty, used both in the creed and in this text, is the word pantokrator. Try to say that with me, would you? Pantokrator. It's kind of fun to say it. One more time. Pantocrator. It's a word reserved for special occasions, used only ten times in the New Testament. And nine of the times are in the book of Revelation. Now, panto means all, and kraten means to rule. So the pantocrator is the ruler of all. I believe in God the Father, ruler of all. Well, what does it mean that God is the ruler of all? And why does it matter for my life? These two questions will guide the rest of our time this morning. What does it mean? Well, for one, it means that God is the one who is always seated on the throne. Sometimes we we mistakenly assume that the book of Revelation is only about the future. However, much of it is about the present. The vision that we read aloud is a vision of present reality. God the Father is currently seated on the throne in heaven. Right now, the church that has gone before us, represented by the 24 elders, are gathered around the throne. Right now, the communion of saints, including your dear family members who have gone before you, right now, they are united to Christ, gathered around the throne, dressed in white with crowns of gold on their heads. Can you see them? Right now, they are beholding the ever-increasing wonder and glory of God. Can you believe it? Jerry Cole is there. Jim Kaler is there. Jim and Pat are there. Beverly and Ray are there. Nellie's there. Linus and Doug Yauman are there. And Susan Kaiser and Donna Sitsima. And so many others who have made their way through our church and through our hearts and into glory. They are all there together around the throne. And the one seated on the throne is God the Father. And they are united to Jesus. Enthralled by the brilliance of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This activity is going on right now as I speak. This is the reality revealed to John on the island of Patmos. And I'm not being sentimental. It's true. When we worship, this simple act of worship, it appears so mundane and ordinary at times. When we worship, if we could peel back the curtain of reality, we would see that we worship with a great cloud of witnesses gathered around the throne, worshiping the one seated on the throne. Amen? Also around the throne are creatures 
who are worshiping too. As 6th century commentator Ocumenius writes, these creatures are seen to encircle the throne of God, indicating through the four creatures that what is upon the earth is worthy of attention and providential care. We don't know everything that the communion of saints are doing in heaven right now, and same goes for the creatures. But what we know for sure is this. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, for they have glimpsed the reality of God and all his goodness and truth and mercy. So to say that God is almighty over the next six weeks, whenever we say this in the Apostles' Creed, it's to recall the vision that God gave John found in Revelation 4. This is a vision not just of a future age, but rather a peek into the invisible reality of the present. As John wanders around the lonely island, God shows up in his mind and peels back the curtain of present reality. John had thought he was all alone, but he'll never make that mistake again because God has revealed the truth about the invisible dimension we call heaven. For once, we get a glimpse of what that real world is really like. It's a world where God's throne is unchallenged. God's people see the divine presence face to face. And even God's creatures are given voice to praise him. That's going on right now, if you can believe it, in the unseen matrix we call heaven. So whenever we say the first line of this creed, I believe in God the Father, ruler of all things, creator of heaven and earth, may we recall this image of reality. That was pretty intense. (laughs) Now let's circle back to the two questions. What does it mean that God is ruler of all, and why does it matter for my life? To believe that God is ruler of all not only means that God sits enthroned in heaven, or all that has just been described is going on 24-7, but it also means that God alone is the rightful ruler of the universe, which includes this earth, the one where we live, where we make decisions about friends to make and jobs to take and what flavors of ice cream to eat. God actively rules this earth. This view is not only professed in the Apostles' Creed, but it's also held by Jesus himself. Philosopher and Christian teacher Dallas Willard makes this point clear. This is a longer quote, but it's worth our attention. Listen to how he, he, how he pictures Christ's current rule on this earth. He writes, To Jesus' eyes, this is a God-bathed and God-permeated world. It is a world filled with a glorious reality where every component is within the range of God's direct knowledge and control. Though he obviously permits some of it for good reason to be for a while otherwise than as he wishes. It is a world that is inconceivably beautiful and good because of God and because God is always in it. It is a world in which God is continually at play and over which he constantly rejoices. That's what it means to say that God is ruler of this earth, according to Willard. And then he gives us a challenge. Until our thoughts of God 
have found every visible thing and event glorious with his presence, the word of Jesus has not yet fully seized us. So we confess that we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And we mean by this that God actively influences and freely rules both heaven and earth. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. This includes God's ability, as we experience, to freely allow and permit even things that are contrary to God's ultimate desires. Theologians call this God's permissive will. On this earth, God temporarily allows opposing wills to exist, at least for the time being. And we all experience this both outside of us and within us. It's a mystery that God does not simply exercise his rightful power to make all things new in Jesus Christ at this very instant, isn't it? But as it now stands, human beings are able to do what is contrary to God's will, at least within limits set by God himself. Why does God show such restraint? Why do we have this time in between where we wait for Christ to make all things new? Some suggest that the reason has something to do with free will and love. Some say it has to do with prayer and God's desire to interact with our desires. The Apostle Peter thinks it has something to do with God's patience. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, Peter writes. Whatever the various reasons for the mystery of God's permissive will, we continue to pray, Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. And when it appears that God's intentions are being thwarted, God's intentions for healing and peace and harmony, God's desire for all people to be saved, as Second Timothy says, when it appears that God's intentions are being thwarted, it is right to join the psalmist in lament. How long, O Lord, how long, as Psalm 13 and many others say. But know this, God's intentions will not ultimately be thwarted. That's what it means to say that God is the Lord Almighty. God is the one who is in charge over it all and who will always be in charge. And in the end, God gets the last word. So we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Let's not skip over the Father part because this this is crucial for understanding the Almighty part. God does all of this ruling and influencing and creating and sustaining, not with the brute strength of a dictator. Rather, he does it all with the love of a father. That's why we say we believe in God, the Father Almighty. You see, God's fatherliness helps us understand the way in which God chooses to be almighty. As we see in Colossians 2, God's power is most fully known through acts of self-giving love, as seen on the cross, above all. God's power is most fully known through acts of self-giving love. So we discover that God is not cruel or insecure or harsh toward us. God is not that sort of father, but God is the father of the prodigal son story. Jesus tells this parable in Luke 15 as 
you probably remember, in order to reveal to us the true heart of God with high-definition clarity. You remember the story, don't you? While he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Jesus is teaching us through this story about the kind of father we have in God. Through Jesus, we come to know God as the father who always moves toward us, not away. Though we run away through our own fault and rebellion, the Father approaches us and makes himself near. Through Jesus, we come to know God as the Father who interrupts our confession with embrace. Even before we're able to get it all out, even before we admit all the terrible ways we've treated him, he gives us a bear hug, if you will, and throws us a party, overjoyed that our relationship has been restored. And through Jesus, we are adopted as God's sons and daughters, becoming by adoption what Jesus is by nature. And so we hear the precious words that are written in 2 Corinthians 6. This, by the way, is the only other place in Scripture besides the book of Revelation where we find that special word, pantocrator, Listen to this. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty, the Lord Pantocrator. Here we see confirmation in what the Apostles' Creed was trying to convey. The Lord is God, Father Almighty. In response to such good news, What else can we do but declare with admiration and delight the first article of the Apostles' Creed? Repeat it after me, would you? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Almighty. creator of heaven and earth. I hope you can now see these words in greater depth. I also hope that what's been said thus far at least begins to answer the question of its relevance for your life. Let me just offer... Two more points of relevance, though, before we leave. Two more ways this first article of the Apostles' Creed matters for your life. You may want to write these down with the pens provided in the seats in front of you. Why does the first line matter for my life? First, it matters because Jesus' experience of what Willard calls the God-bathed world, is available to you. By the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, you too can see the world as Jesus saw it, as inconceivably beautiful and good, because God is always in it, and God is continually at play. If you respond in trust to this possibility, then it will certainly affect your prayer life, If God is continually at play in the world, in your world, in the world surrounding you, your friendships, 
your school, your work, your family relationships. If God is continually at play, then God is able to respond to your prayers with fatherly attention. What's more, prayer itself becomes more than just a list of requests, but prayer becomes primarily a way of being with God. As Jesus lived a life with the Father, so you can live a similarly intimate life with the Father too. The with God life is available to you because God the Father is ruler of all things, and God the Son, God the Son, restored your place in the order of things. So you can now pay attention to the presence and influence of God all around you, and then you can start talking with God about it. This will surely, if you do this, this will surely result in the addition of your voice to the heavenly choir, which is rolling on live right now to the tune of holy, holy, holy. This leads us right into the second point of relevance. The first article of the Apostles' Creed also matters because John's vision of the worshiping reality in heaven can be seen by you too. What comfort this vision brings to those who grieve the loss of loved ones who have died in the Lord. What courage this vision brings to those who are walking in the shadow of death to know that God is with you as the ruler of heaven and earth, and Christ has tasted death on your behalf. Therefore, nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What comfort this vision brings, and what courage this vision brings. Finally, what urgency this vision brings to our relationships with those who lack such comfort and courage. May we love such people in our lives with the fatherly love of God, a love which, whose, whose power is most fully expressed in acts of self-giving love. May we love others as Christ has loved us. This is why the first article in the Apostles' Creed matters for our lives so that we can see that God is ruling all things in heaven through the vision of John, and so that we can experience Jesus' experience of the world, which is that God permeates all things. In God, we live and move and have our being. Let us pray in the name of God the Father, who sits on the throne, and God the Son, who is like a lamb standing as if it had been slain, and God the Holy Spirit, who opens our heart to receive this divine mystery in faith. Let us pray. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord, God Almighty, and our Father, who art in heaven. We adore your glorious name. We ask for help. We believe. Help our unbelief. Give us by your grace, faith to see what John saw, faith to believe that your presence surely is omnipresent, as Jesus believed, and faith to see that you rule all things in heaven and on earth. Give us comfort where we, where we need comfort today, courage where we need courage, and a sense of urgency 
and the patience of your love as we love those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.